We're in week two of our series, One Church, One Mission, kind of walking through our vision, mission, values as a church. Our vision, of course, to be a gospel-centered community on mission. That's what we strive to be. And this is our mission, right? Redeemer exists to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, build them together as God's church, and send them out to live on mission in Bloomington and throughout the world. And as we, we seek in, to lean into that mission, right, we need some, some core values to kind of provide some guardrails to kind of help us like know who we are, what do we do, what do we don't do, uh, kind of guides our actions and ministries. And so last week we looked at our first value of biblical faithfulness, if you were with us then. Uh, this week we're, we're looking at the second value uh, of being gospel-centered. Uh, it, it is faith in the gospel. This is the value. This is how we have it written on our, our, our values on the website and, and kind of all of our documents here. Uh, it is faith in the gospel that saves us and faith in the gospel that empowers our growth. Therefore, the good news of Jesus Christ forms and fuels everything we think, say, and do. And so if we're going to strive to be a, a gospel-centered community on mission, uh, we first must understand what does it mean to be gospel-centered? Like, what are we even talking about? Uh, in other words, we shouldn't just assume that we all are on the same page all the time about what it means to be gospel-centered. In, in many ways, those have just become uh, additional kind of buzzwords in the, the you know, kind of Christian world. If, if you go to Amazon right now and you type in gospel-centered and just click uh, you will get this whole list of things, right? Gospel, the gospel-centered life, gospel-centered parenting, gospel-centered leadership, gospel-centered kids ministry, gospel-centered counseling, gospel-centered work, what, you know, it's on and on and on and on. And we don't want to just simply assume that we know what it means for anyone or anything to be gospel-centered we, we need to know what it is we're talking about uh, and how the Bible informs and shapes that understanding. Many of you know the gospel, right? Praise the Lord. You, you know what the gospel is. The gospel is, of course, good news. That's literally what the word gospel means. It means good news. Uh, but, but the gospel is, is not good news in general. It's not like good news that it's going to be 60 degrees today. That's not the gospel. Uh, it's specific news, uh, specific good news about Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection to save sinners like you and me. Uh, many of you know that, but there may be some of you in this room that, that you don't know that. That's new to you. And let me just say right off the bat, we're glad you're here, right? We're glad you're here. We, we're, we're so glad you're here, and we invite you to feel welcome here. Uh, we want you to feel welcome to ask questions, to journey with us, and, and to, for this to be a community where we can kind of wrestle through some of that together and, and seek to understand what, what is the gospel? What, what does it mean that Jesus lived, died, and was raised for our sins? But let's also be clear that while some of you know the gospel, you've heard the gospel, and you've responded to it with saving faith in Jesus Christ— you may still, in reality, have no understanding what it means to be gospel-centered. And, and that phrase may just be buzzwords for you. It may just be buzzwords that you, yeah, yeah, sure, gospel-centered, yeah, that's me. But you have no idea. I know that this is the case from my own personal kind of gospel awakening in my life after I've been doing college ministry for a number of years. Right? One of the most pivotal moments in my life came uh, a little over a decade ago. Uh, and, and it happened uh, just kind of with, with our, around the dinner table with our, with our kids. All right, for those of you who don't know, my wife Crystal and I, we have three kids. 
uh, to today, right? Uh, our old son, Seth, is 19. He's a freshman at IU. Uh, our daughter, Leah, is uh, 16, junior in high school. And our youngest son, Levi, just turned 13. So three teenagers, you could pray for us. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so he's a seventh grader. And, and when, when Leah was somewhere around five years old, so this a few years back, right? A little over a decade ago. She's 16 now. We were sitting around the dinner table as a family and uh, discussing what the kids were learning in church. Not this church. This was before Redeemer existed. Uh, and so we asked Leah, what, is it, what does it mean to be a Christian? And Leah's response at five years old was that you do more good things than bad things? Question mark? And it kind of had the question mark on it and the way she answered it. Uh, but friends, is, is that what it means to be a Christian? Do you do more good things than bad things? No. No, that, that is a wrong answer. That's an incorrect answer. Uh, unfortunately, probably there's, there may be somebody in the room that that's your perception of what Christianity is. is it means you try to do more good things than bad things. That's what it means to be a Christian. But that's not right. That is wrong. But this was an awakening moment for, for me as a dad, as a husband, right? Just so you know, I didn't scold my daughter for her answer. Like, it wasn't her fault. In fact, uh, all the blame rested on my shoulders, because you see what had happened was in that season I had not taken the responsibility that God had entrusted to me to make sure I was the one pouring the gospel in first and foremost, you know, along with my wife into, into our kids. And I was entrusting too much of that responsibility to the local church. You know, and I don't know exactly where, where in that church that she got that and if, where that came from. But that's, it was my fault, right? It was my fault. And so it was kind of a moment of, of repentance for me that I need to take that responsibility to pour the gospel into my kids. And don't worry about Leah, by the way. Um, she'll gospel your socks off today. Uh, in fact, I asked her, you know, for permission. I asked when I share things about my kids, especially at these ages, I asked for permission uh, because I, I know that they need to give blessing before I just start sharing stories about their life because uh, they're not for everyone's knowledge all the time. Uh, but when I asked her, my, my daughter is just like, sure, yeah, you can share anything about me. I know my identity is, is that I'm a daughter of God, right? Uh, I was like, proud dad moment right there. That's, that's beautiful. I'm, I'm thankful for that. But unfortunately, that, that conversation so many years ago around our dinner table is not the only conversation I've had like that. Not the only one I've had like that. Over the years uh, of pastoring this church, I've had numerous conversations with people here. You know, uh, far too many conversations with, with people who've grown up in church, their whole lives grown up in church. And yet, when, when we're talking about the gospel, when we're seeking to apply the gospel specifically to some aspect of their life, right, explaining how on the cross Jesus was regarded as their sin, and in a sense kind of, you know, suffered as their sin and gave to them in exchange his perfect righteousness, his perfect record was given to them. As I've shared that through repentance and faith in Jesus, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection, that they have not only been forgiven of their sins, but, but welcomed into and adopted into the family of God as his children. I've shared that numerous with times with people who have grown up in church only to hear them say to me, I've never heard that before. I've never heard that before. How does that happen? For someone to grow up in church and not hear that. The reality is, is that in many churches, the gospel is, is merely uh, assumed. But it's never explicit. 
It's implied and assumed, but it's, it's never explicitly proclaimed. Maybe except for, you know, at Easter time, only as an invitation for unbelievers to come to faith in Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ is assumed, but it's never articulated. It's never specifically applied to other, all these areas of our lives. It's only presented as a way to receive salvation and enter the faith, but, but never mentioned after that. Everything else is, this, here's how you grow in your faith, right? Here are three steps to a better marriage, three steps to fix your finances, and so on. It's an assumed gospel. But the Bible makes the gospel explicit, and it must be explicit. It has to be. The, the gospel must be presented not only as an entry point to the faith, but also as the way that we grow in the faith. The gospel is what moves us to repentance and faith, and it is what moves us to become more and more like Jesus as we journey with him, as we continue to walk with him. The gospel is meant to be central to everything, not just a gateway to get in to the faith, but, but you know, and then we move on to the advanced material. That's not what the gospel is. It's not just the entry point. The gospel is the beginning, intermediate, and advanced material. It's everything. It's the, it's the whole Christian life is the gospel. And, and the gospel is most succinctly summarized for us probably in all the, the scriptures in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. And that's where we're going to be today for our passage. I invite you to turn there and stand with me for the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are we're grateful for this time uh, to be together. And, and we pray by your spirit that you'd open our hearts to the good news of the gospel today in, 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 in a new way, in a way that, 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 that just hits us different, that, that grabs hold of areas of our life that we have not yet surrendered to you, that your grace invades our hearts and, and renews us. Father, we pray that your gospel would, would bring dead hearts to life today for those who may not know you yet in this room. And we pray, Lord, that you would enable us to be people centered on the good news of Jesus, that it would form and feel everything we think, say, and do. We pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. Uh, in, these, in these few verses, Paul is pointing us to the absolute centrality of the gospel. First, we see the gospel as central in salvation. But before we, we get too far ahead, we must begin by answering the question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? What, what is the good news about Jesus? And, and Paul, writing here to the church in Corinth, tells us very plainly what the gospel is in verses 3 through 4. He says, the gospel is this, right? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel, succinctly summarized for us by the apostle Paul. Jesus died to forgive your sins, he was buried, and he was raised. He's alive. 
right? And this, this was no fluke. This was not like plan B. This was not like God had one plan in motion and then all of a sudden had to call it audible at the line of scrimmage and just kind of adjust it. But this was in fact God's sovereign plan from before the beginning of the world. Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundations of the world, God set in motion this plan to redeem and rescue us through the Son. The recurring phrase in these, these couple verses, in accordance with the scriptures, is Paul's way of pointing us to the totality of the biblical witness to this very truth, that this was in fact God's plan to rescue us from Satan, sin, and death from before the foundations of the world. You know, the, the first preaching of the gospel happens in the Garden of, of Eden after the fall in Genesis 3.15, right? When, when the when God is, is kind of issuing out the curses for the fall and the sin that, that Adam and Eve had committed and the serpent's temptation, right? And, and kind of the, the words to the serpent, the curse to the serpent, God says, you know, through the seed of the woman will come one who will crush your head. It's the first preaching of the gospel in the, in the Bible, Genesis 3.15, right at the very beginning. One is coming who will crush the enemy's head. Right? Jesus is coming. And the entire biblical witness points to this idea, this understanding that, that, that this is God's plan from before the foundation of the world to rescue us from Satan, sin, and death. And the verses that follow that we didn't read, Paul goes on to name those who witnessed these events of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Those who witnessed the resurrected, the resurrected Christ, which is his way of telling us this actually happened. This is real, right? This, this, this is news, it, it's not like wishful thinking. It happened. The good news of the gospel is news about something that actually literally happened in human history. It's finished and it's done. Jared C. Wilson in his book, Gospel Wakefulness, he says it like, the, he says it like this. He says, notice that the gospel is not advice, not suggestion, not instruction, nor is it vague spirituality, steps to enlightenment, skills to implement, or precepts to practice. It is information. It is an announcement. It is news. News to be believed, yes, but it is news of something that has, uh, but it is not news of something that has yet to happen or something we can make happen, but rather something that has already happened and was made to happen by God himself. The gospel is good news, not good advice. Paul gives us here an authoritative summary of the gospel, but the rest of the New Testament talks about the gospel in other ways as well. Right In Matthew's gospel account, we're told that Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Obviously, before his death and resurrection, uh, Jesus wasn't very often preaching about those events, but was announcing instead that a way to have life with God under the rule of God was coming again, was now available again through him. Jesus was declaring the inbreaking kingdom of God where he would be crowned king of kings and lord of lords. This was in essence an announcement that, that, that the peace that was wrecked at the fall when sin entered the world, that peace would be restored to everything in everything. The offer of a reconciled relationship to God as well as the promise of the new heavens and the new earth the restoration of all things was, was in view as Jesus proclaimed the kingdom, like the gospel of the kingdom. In, in, in Acts 20, 24, we're told that the gospel is the, the gospel of the grace of God. 
It's clear as you continue to read the entire scripture, uh, the entirety of scripture, that while the gospel is, is a simple announcement of news, of something accomplished, it's also multifaceted. In order to seek to grab a hold of the whole gospel, we here kind of speak of one gospel with three aspects, the gospel of kingdom, cross, and grace. Uh, here's a definition of, of, of the gospel that kind of greatly borrows from a book by Daniel Montgomery and Timothy Paul Jones called Proof. But the gospel is the good news that God's kingdom power has entered human history through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we repent and trust in Jesus, relying on his righteousness instead of our own, his kingdom power transforms us and moves us to join Jesus in his mission of restoring God's world. The gospel of the kingdom, the aspect of the kingdom is this, life with God under the rule of God. That's the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the cross is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that, that pays for our sins and makes possible through repentance and faith, restored relationship with God, forgiveness of sins, right? It inaugurates Christ's reign in the world. And the gospel of grace is the wonderful news, the wonderful news that God accepts us, he shares his life with us, and adopts us as heirs of his kingdom, not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but because God chooses to give all of this freely to us at Christ's expense. It's all God's doing from start to finish. The Father plans our rescue in eternity past. The Son comes and carries out our rescue through his, his life, death, and resurrection. And the Holy Spirit even opens our hearts, enables our hearts to receive that good news and trust in it and believe it. It's all God's doing. It's all grace. All grace. And those three aspects together compose a whole gospel. Summed up briefly, the gospel is the good news that we enter God's kingdom through God's cross by God's grace. We need a whole gospel. Right? There, there are dangers, and you see this played out in churches throughout history, of focusing on one aspect of the gospel kind of at the, the expense of the others. Right? You think about the mainline denominations that we've witnessed over the last 150 years in, in, in the United States in particular, uh, who have focused on the gospel of the kingdom divorced from the gospel of the cross. Right, so there's been a focus on, on homeless shelters and, and feeding the poor and caring for the needy. But we're not going to mention Jesus because that just divides people. That gets in the way. It, it, it just creates friction. We're going to just leave Jesus out of it and we're just going to meet practical needs. It's the gospel of the kingdom divorced from the gospel of the cross. And those churches have just fallen off of orthodoxy. But in a similar way, in the evangelical churches... We can get overly fixated only on the gospel of the cross, kind of at the expense of the gospel of the kingdom, to where Christianity is only about getting you to pray a prayer, only getting you to have a personal restored relationship with Jesus, but who cares what happens to the world around us? It's all going to burn anyway. That's not a whole gospel. Jesus comes announcing the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus comes healing meeting physical needs, as well as proclaiming that the restored relationship with God is available through faith in him again. A whole gospel. We need a whole gospel. A whole gospel addresses us holistically. Daniel Montgomery and Mike Cosper in a book, Faith Mapping, they, they write, our tendency toward Pharisaism can be tempered by looking at God's scandalous grace. 
Our tendency toward individualism can be corrected by looking at God's kingdom, a transgenerational global movement of new making. And our tendency toward triumphalism and pride can be confronted with the crucified Savior, whose wounds are an eternal reminder of our sin and need. Right? We need a whole gospel to, to, to impact us holistically. And the Apostle Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel, this whole gospel, it is central in salvation. Right? Verse 1. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. The gospel received is the grounds for salvation, right? That's what is meant by the words, in which you stand. The gospel is is the grounds for our justification, our being declared right with God, that we're okay with God, welcomed into his presence in a restored relationship all at one moment through repentance and faith in Jesus, Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone to everyone who believes. That is, whenever the good news of Jesus Christ is preached and it is re- received through repentance and faith, um, whenever that's shared, it has the power, the gospel through the Holy Spirit has the power to awaken dead hearts to faith and life in Jesus It is in receiving that news, hearing it and responding to it, that God brings people from death to life. It's not advice on for you know on how to live your life that saves you. It's not a path to enlightenment that invites you into salvation. It's not a list of do's and don'ts that rescues you. It's the announcement that Jesus Christ has paid it all. That you were dead in your sins. You had no hope of making things right. You have no hope of making things right, of getting your life together. But Jesus lived the life you couldn't. He died the death you deserve, and he was raised victorious over sin and death. He has done it all for you. Receive the gift. Receive the gift that he's made available to you. That's the good news of the gospel. And Paul is showing us here that the gospel is central in salvation. But as he continues, we also see that the gospel is central in sanctification. That's what is meant when Paul says in verse 2 that it is the gospel by which you are being saved. Sanctification is what is in view. Sanctification refers, of course, to that the process of ongoing spiritual growth, of growing in Christ's likeness as you continue to follow Jesus. And, and Paul is telling us right here, not, not just like doing stuff and not doing stuff, but no, centering your life on the gospel by which you are being saved. The gospel is what is sanctifying you as well. It's not just your entry point, it's what grows you in the faith. As pastor and author Tim Keller says, the gospel isn't the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z. It's not just the elementary and introductory truths. The gospel is what drives everything that we do. The gospel is pretty much the solution to every problem. The gospel is what every theological category should be expounding when we do our systematic theology. It should be very much a part of everything. It's not the entry point. It's the everything to faith. It's how we grow. It's what moves us and transforms us. It's faith in the gospel and that good news about Jesus Christ. The reality is that if the gospel is only an entry point to the faith, right, you know what that means. 
Who's responsible for your ongoing spiritual growth if the gospel's only an entry point? You. You. You are solely responsible for that. It's all on your shoulders. But here's the thing, right? We live in the reality that we have been saved from our sins, yet we still sin this side of glory. If the gospel is only an entry point, then it's all on you to work harder, to do better, to overcome your struggles. I don't know about you, but, but I've attempted that approach and it hasn't had the best results. It doesn't work out so well. It leaves you frustrated and defeated when you just try to handle it all on your own, by your own strength, by your own effort. And when a church kind of adopts that mindset that the gospel is just kind of an entry point, right, then what happens is that sermons in those churches only end up addressing behaviors. So you get the sermons, like here's three actions to make your marriage better. And here's three ways you could fix your finances. And here's three steps to, to be your best you uh, that you can be and so on. Right, a Bible verse gets, gets read. Jesus gets mentioned. Sounds like gospel, right? But it's not. The center of those messages is you. You need to fix this. You need to get this straightened out. You need to put it back together. And in that mindset, the gospel is most certainly not central. It's only seen as the elementary stuff. The advanced material is you better work harder. You better follow the right steps. You better get things in order. Do more. But that never really works. It doesn't work. Through the, through the years of this church, we've, we've seen Christians who, who love Jesus and have tried hard on their own to battle uh, their besetting sins uh, by their own effort with little success. But when you see those folks come awake to the gospel, it's not just the entry point, but it's the everything to the faith. You start to see how the gospel transforms and sets people free and empowers them to walk in and toward greater redemption and freedom. Freedom from those struggles. Freedom from those sins, not by their own effort, but by trusting in the finished work of Jesus that has already delivered them. Your sanctification, your growing in holiness has to be centered on the gospel because sin issues are not simply behavior issues to manage. They're not. They're, they're ultimately heart issues. They're, they're worship issues. It's about worshiping lesser gods, seeking from lesser gods things that only Jesus can and has perfectly delivered for you. Only the gospel can help you root out the idols of the heart and replace, replace those lesser gods that drive your behaviors with the one true God, the Lord and Savior, King Jesus. If you read the Bible, you don't see the scriptures calling you to simply try harder, do better. You don't see the Bible telling you, hey, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. That's not what the Bible does. You see the Bible again and again saying to you, would you look at the gospel? Would you look at Jesus? Would you remember what he's done for you? Would you remember all that you have in him because of what he's done? Would you consider who you are in him? Would you remember that? 
Would you believe that? Would you start to live like that's true of you? Because it is. That's what the Bible does over and over and over again. Would you remember the gospel? Would you remember Jesus? All of Paul's letters in the New Testament, they follow this, this basically, this, this uh, format where he starts off in the opening parts, you know, like Ephesians. We're going to go through Ephesians this year. Ephesians is almost like a perfect split. The first three chapters, all about the indicatives of what God in Christ has done for you. And then chapters four through six come after the indicative, and that's where you get the imperatives. In light of what God in Christ has done for you, okay, now here's how that fleshes out in your life. Here's what your life should look like in light of being centered on the finished work of Christ for you. His letters follow that pattern all the time. It's the gospel that propels your growth in Christ. There's a diagram I think we're going to share up here, the gospel grid. You guys have gone through the gospel-centered life. Uh, those of you who have been a part of that, um, this is one of those documents. There's, there should be another one maybe, but this is fine. You'll get the picture. Uh, but at the point of conversion is the moment you realize God is holy, I'm sinful, and you put your trust in Jesus. And this is where, this is actually showing when we minimize the gospel in this one. But the, when you actually are walking centered on the gospel, the cross starts looking bigger and bigger and bigger because you realize God's holiness is infinite. My sinfulness goes far deeper than I first realized. The cross means all that much more. But we have this tendency to minimize the cross, right? By, by saying that God's holiness is only this, this measurable standard. It's only these five to ten things that I feel like I got a good handle on. So we shrink the cross. Or we say, my, my sin's really not that bad. It was justified. You know, it's the other guy who was out there who cut me off on the highway. It's his, his fault. And that's why I had to extend my hand in a certain gesture toward him. Uh, it wasn't my anger. It's not my sin. It's really theirs that motivated that. And so I'm not really that bad, so we shrink the cross. My sin's not that bad, and we shrink the cross. But, but how do we get the cross to loom larger again? We come back to the gospel, and we remember, no, God is far more holy than we can ever comprehend. He's infinitely holy. His holiness is not measurable. It's not attainable for you or me. We can't even ever understand it fully. Not in all eternity will we fully comprehend his holiness. And our sin goes far deeper. You know, it's not just the, the behaviors that we struggle with, but sometimes it's even the good things we do that we do for selfish, sinful motives so that people would notice us, so that we would feel better about ourselves. Those are motives that are not always pure and, and holy and good. Our sin goes far deeper. But Jesus has paid it all. The cross looms larger. The gospel is what helps us grow. There you go. Uh, in, 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 as we walk with, with Jesus in that. The real, reality is, is that, that we're all prone to gospel amnesia. Right? We forget it, and so we shrink it. We forget the gospel, and so we shrink it. We forget what Jesus has accomplished for us. And so it, it's necessary that we continue to preach the gospel to ourselves. And one of the greatest tools to doing that is being in the word daily. Reading the word, right? We talked about that last week. The gospel's where the power is, but the, God, the word is where the gospel is, Jared C. Wilson says. And, and so we need to be people of the word so that we are hearing, responding to, being reminded daily of the good news of Jesus Christ. 
Martin Luther wrote in the preface to his work on Galatians, the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is that we know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. Classic Martin Luther quote. But what that means is that we just need to keep the gospel ever in front of our faces all the time. That's what Paul's talking about here in verse, verse 2 when he says, hold fast to the word that I preach to you. Hold fast to the gospel. Keep it in front of your faces all the time. Remind yourself day by day by day. Make sure you're in community with brothers and sisters who will remind you and point you back to the good news of Jesus every day as you're walking through those struggles. Keep the gospel ever in front of you. Keep it central. That's the key not only to your initial salvation, but your ongoing growth, your sanctification in Christ. Tied to our ongoing growth is seeing the gospel as central to your identity. Again, the pattern of the Bible is that the, the gospel indicatives precede the gospel commands. And what that means is that who you are in Christ gives shape to what you do. Who you are informs what you do. Who you are comes before what you do. Right? What you do, the other way around, flows out of who you are. That's the other way of saying it. And the gospel declares who you are beautifully. You are God's beloved child. We sang that song today. Adoption, right? He's adopted you in. You are God's beloved child. That's who you are. His beloved son, his beloved daughter. The gospel makes clear that God is not simply some judge who sits on the bench and drops the gavel and declares you not guilty and then walks away cold and estranged. But he's the same judge that declares you not guilty but then steps down from the bench and walks around and puts his arms around you and says, welcome to the family. Welcome to the family. That's who he is. He forgives you and he adopts you as his beloved child. And that is your most fundamental identity, Christian. Right? You're, you're not your, your ethnicity, first or foremost. You're not your nationality, first or foremost. You're not a Hoosier, first or foremost. Right? You're not the way you vote, first or foremost. You're not your job. Your primary, most fundamental identity Son or daughter of God, child of God, beloved child of God. That's who you are because of the finished work of Christ. You're no longer your sin. You're not the struggle that you're walking through right now. That is not who you are. You're no longer your failure or your successes. You are the righteousness of God. Whoever you were before Christ, whatever it is you used to build your identity on, is no longer who you are. Now your identity is in Christ. That is going to get hammered into our brains when we get to Ephesians later this year, where it just says, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, on repeat through the whole letter. That is who you are. You are in Christ. You are his beloved child let me give you a sampling of what the Bible says happens for you, the moment of salvation. This is who Jesus says you are right now through faith in him. You are redeemed from slavery to sin. You are reconciled to God. You are forgiven 
for all your sins. You are freed from the law of sin and death. You are adopted by God. You become a child of God. You are accepted by God. You are justified by Jesus Christ. You are glorified with Jesus. You are united to Jesus. You possess every spiritual blessing in Christ. You are brought close to God. You are delivered from the power of darkness. You join the priesthood of believers. You join the people of God. You receive citizenship in heaven. You are granted access to God. You receive an inheritance. You become a light to the world. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. You are in the Spirit. The Spirit is in you. That's who you are. That's who you are. As a son or daughter of God, all of that is true of you right now. And who you are shapes what you do. Do you believe that that's who you are? If you put your hope in Christ, that's who he says you are. And his opinion matters more than even your own. gospel is central to everything. We're saved through hearing and responding to the gospel with repentance and faith. We grow in our faith as we rest in the gospel and continue to respond with repentance and faith. And as we center our lives on the gospel, it always bears fruit, right? Drawing us closer to Christ with a growing faith, drawing us into deeper community with, with fellow believers within the local church. And it pushes us out to live on mission to take the gospel to others who need to hear it, who need to know it, to be those ambassadors, those agents of, of reconciliation that others too might experience the saving and transforming power of the gospel. That's who we want to strive to be here as a church. So the gospel needs to form and fuel everything that we do from the structure of how we worship we, we, you, if you've been here more than a, a minute, right, you know we, we walk through this, this very same kind of pattern of liturgy each week. You know, call to worship, confession, assurance, uh, you know, the peace. We, we, have, we share in the Lord's Supper. We, we, we uh, have a commitment and time of prayer at the end and a benediction and a blessing for the road. All, all those things are part of our gathering each week. You know what we're doing as we walk through all of that each week? Through our worship, we're centering ourselves on the gospel. We're remembering the gospel and we're preaching the gospel to ourselves, right? Because God is the one who initiates relationship with us. He calls us to worship him, but we are sinful and we cannot come before him on our own. But Jesus has paid it all. There's our assurance. And he makes possible that we can come and worship him. And the culmination of our, our celebration of worship is in partaking in the Lord's Supper, which we're gonna do in just a moment that he's paid it all and we can come and be at one with him. And we, we confess our faith together. We pray for the Spirit's empowering that we would live in light of the gospel in the week ahead. And we send one another with a blessing to live as God's people, rooted in the gospel. Right? The gospel forms that worship. It forms how we preach God's word. We, we preach, right, the whole Bible. We seek to preach the whole counsel of God's word. But what are we gonna do when we're in Exodus like, we're not going to pretend like Jesus isn't there yet. The whole Bible is all about Jesus. So we're going to preach the gospel wherever we're at in the word. 
It shapes our focus on community, why we think getting into a community group is so vitally important and central to being God's people, that we need believers around us who will keep us pointed back to the hope that we have in Christ and remind us of who we are in Christ. And it moves us on mission to serve holistically with the good news and the words of the gospel as we meet practical needs and as we share Jesus with others. We're not big on programs, but we rather want to be a church that equips people and just turns them loose to join Jesus on mission, relationally, organically, wherever God has you. The gospel forms and fuels everything we think, say, and do. We haven't arrived in that, and we never will. We never will. But we're aspiring. We are aspiring. We're praying. We're begging the Holy Spirit to empower us more and more to be a community that keeps the gospel central. What about you? What about you? What is the gospel in your life today? Do you know it? Is it shaping you? Is it informing everything that you think, say, and do? Are you inviting it in? Or is the gospel just merely an entry point for you and you've moved on from it? The gospel invitation is the same for both believers and non-believers today as it is every week. The gospel tells you that apart from Jesus, you are spiritually dead without hope in your sins and you're desperately in need of rescue that you can never accomplish for yourself but that God has planned your rescue by sending his son Jesus to live and die and be raised again to save you from sin and death. Not because you deserve it, not because you earned it, not because you can pay him back for it, but as a sheer gift of his grace and mercy. The invitation is to respond to that good news with repentance and faith. To turn from living for yourself, from living for your job, from living for your relationships, from living for anything other than Jesus, to turn from your sin and turn to Christ and put your hope and your trust in him fully. May the gospel renew and rescue you if you don't know him and may it continue to grow and equip you if you do that you might join Jesus and live for him in every way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for the gospel, the good news that you sent your son to live for us, to die for us, and to be raised for us, that through receiving this news we might be able to stand saved and secure in Christ, that in remembering this news, we might be enabled to grow in holiness as we hold fast to your gospel. Holy Spirit, help us to be a people that are truly centered on the gospel, that the good news of Jesus would truly form and fuel everything we think and say and do more and more. Help us to live for Jesus and enjoy his grace and mercy in every way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.